1: I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulation and Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God." I got an inspiration on how we laity can save the Catholic Church, as Archbishop Fulton Sheen said we would. It's been staring me in the face for over 30 years, but I've been too thick to see it. I'll explain it in this episode. I've been sharing the faith with people for over 30 years. The Holy Spirit has used me to make hundreds of converts, and 84 of them are my adult godchildren. When the Holy Spirit works through us in a big way, He usually uses the talents given to us before we were even born. When we develop those talents for Him, we're often impelled to pass on to others what we've done and how we've done it for the greater glory of God. That's why I wrote the Lay Evangelist Handbook. You might say the Lay Evangelist Handbook was 30 years in the making, because in this book I share with you all the best that I've learned about how to share the faith with laps and non-Catholics so you can bring your friends and family to the fullness of divinely revealed truth. The very first chapter gives you a thorough explanation of the things you need to do to maximize your effectiveness so you won't end up with egg on your face when trying to engage people. I explain the differences between the various types of lay evangelists and others you can learn from. I even talk about some statistics that should help give you a real sense of urgency for sharing the faith. Then I get to the step-by-step process for sharing the faith. I give a full presentation of the exact text I've used and refined for 30 years. I tell you what to do, what to say, and how to do and say it, while leaving room for you to work in your own personality and make these techniques your own. There's no other book like this on the market. So get your print or ebook copy of The Lay Evangelist Handbook today. It's available in print on cantankerouscatholic.com or in print and ebook on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. The first thing I want to do is remind you to send me your questions for Bishop Strickland. We're running low on questions. This is a wonderful opportunity to ask a bishop what you've often thought about asking, so send me your questions. Also, don't forget your copy of How Your Family Can Survive When Society Collapses. Society is collapsing all around us, and you've got to begin preparations to protect your family now. So get How Your Family Can Survive When Society Collapses from the Joe's Stuff tab at cantankerouscatholic.com today. Finally, as you can see, I'm back. God has answered prayer, your prayers, more than you can imagine. As I told you last week, I went in to lose my leg below the knee. Imagine my joy and praise of God when I awoke in recovery to find I only lost my toe. Next week, I'll tell you all about it, but this week, I need to tell you about something much more important than my life. This week, I'm going to tell you how we can save the church, but we must all stand together and before Almighty God to commit ourselves to this great battle of peace. I've figured out how we lay people can save the church. Venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen once said, Who is going to save our church? Not our bishops, not our priests and religious. It's up to you, the people. You have the minds, the eyes, the ears to save the church. His statement was prophetic. Now it's time for us, you and me, to step up and fulfill that prophecy, and we'll do so by solving the number one problem in the Catholic Church. What's the number one problem we face in the church? It's not the priest sex scandal. It's not the USCCB criminal empire. It's not even homosexuality in the priesthood and hierarchy. The number one problem in the church is ignorance. John Henry Cardinal Newman once said that the greatest tragedy in the Catholic church is the ignorance of the Catholic laity. He said that nearly 150 years ago, at a time when bishops saw as their primary task educating the laity. If St. John Henry Cardinal Newman was concerned with the ignorance of the laity then, how much worse is it today? The bishops in America began watering down the catechism 60 years ago. After Vatican II, with no mandate from the Council to do so, the bishops began to focus on social justice, which is a phony social justice. They allowed, and in some cases promoted, liturgical experimentation especially in the mass thanks to the usccb evil empire this resulted in a steady trickle of catholics leaving the faith now thanks to st john paul ii we had a real increase in converts during his pontificate but because the bishops refused to instruct cradle catholics we had a yearly loss in the pews now that most of the preconciliar catholics are dead and gone we have a church full of uncatechized catholics Let me prove that to you. I've lived in the Archdiocese of St. Louis for ten years. You don't speak to me long before the conversation turns to Catholicism. When a Catholic tells me he's well-catechized, I ask one question, how many sacraments are there, and name them. There's no more basic question than that, yet I can count on one hand the number of lay people who've been able to answer that question. I'm not being hyperbolic. Less than five Catholics in ten years have been able to tell me how many sacraments there are, much less name them. One young man even told me there are twelve sacraments. As an aside, for those of you who just now struggled with the question, there are seven sacraments. They are baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, confession, anointing of the sick, matrimony, and holy orders. If you said anything different to yourself, or if you couldn't just rattle them off, you're ignorant of the Catholic faith. You need to fix that, and I've got a solution for you a little later. Any Orthodox and faithful priest will tell you that the number one problem in the church is that the laity are completely ignorant of the faith. I was speaking with Michael Voris of Church Militant one day and mentioned that at least 95% of Catholics are ignorant of the faith. He said that I was being entirely too charitable. Two weeks later, when I was talking to Terry Barber of The Terry and Jesse Show, I related my conversation with Michael. Terry said that he agreed with Michael. More often than not, when I have suggested to people that they may need some remedial catechesis, I always get one of two responses 100% of the time. Some will say, I'll have you know I went to Catholic school, or they'll say, I've been a Catholic all my life. What do those two answers mean, anyway? They only tell me that these people don't know the faith, and they're too embarrassed to admit it. So how do we overcome the problem of an ignorant laity? The answer is a lot more simple than you might think. For more than 25 years, God used me to make over 200 converts and reverts in the very same way. I either convince people to sit down with me one-on-one for instruction, or I'd gather small groups of 5 to 15 and instruct them together. And that's how we can solve the ignorant laity problem. If you really want to change the state of the church militant and save the souls of Catholics bound for hell, you must take the initiative to make it happen. Begin approaching Catholics about catechesis. Begin with people in your parish who are people of good will, people who won't be offended or buck on the idea of gaining a deeper understanding and knowledge of the faith. After a session or two, urge them to begin to invite other Catholics to join in. Pretty soon, just by word of mouth, you'll have a majority of your parish fully catechized. By pretty soon, I mean five to ten years. It requires commitment and consistency, but you six-pack warriors can do it. Besides, one of the two Catholic obligations you must fulfill if you want to have a reasonable expectation of being saved is fulfilled if you take my advice. But what catechism to use? Well, I suggest you use my catechism, Secrets of the Catholic Faith. That's the one you give to your students. For you personally, as the teacher, I suggest the Lay Evangelist Handbook. The Lay Evangelist Handbook is essentially a teacher's edition of Secrets of the Catholic Faith. It tells you exactly what to do and say and when to do and say it. This book also makes sure that your students not only learn what the Catholic Church teaches, but why the Church teaches it. Adults aren't like children. They need to know the whys and wherefores of Church teaching. Catholics, particularly here in America, want to know why they're expected to accept the Church's teachings. You may be thinking that no one would be interested, that you won't get anyone other than two or three to accept instruction. Well, you'd be thinking wrong. Why do you think I began doing the things I do over 30 years ago? I began doing this when I was a catechumen. For starters, I made my catechism prove everything the Catholic Church teaches and rest assured that absolutely everything the Catholic Church teaches can be proven, from God's existence to the real presence to the fact that Jesus established the Catholic Church. I made my catechist prove all of that, and through that I learned that Catholic truth is exciting. I've been all over America and in six other countries. I've hunted bounty and served our nation in uniform. I've hobnobbed with the rich and famous, and I've helped the homeless, junkies, and alcoholics. Despite all that, I've learned that Catholicism is the most exciting lived experience anyone can have. But in order to understand that, you have to know the faith yourself. That's why I do what I do. Catholicism is exciting. If the faith isn't exciting to you, then you're ignorant of Catholic truth. If you're not sure about your proficiency in your knowledge of the faith, you need to get proficient. There are two good ways to do that. One is to become a member of the Marian Catechist Apostolate. You'll come under the direction of Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke as a Marian Catechist. The other way is to attend the Sharing the Catholic Faith webinars. Because of my health, I've had to quit hosting these free weekly webinars. However, I've found a devout Catholic couple who's as excited about the faith as I am, and they're going to be taking over these webinars within the next few weeks. So what you need to do is get on my email list so you'll begin getting invitations to these webinars when they start back up. Sharing the faith is one of the two primary things you need to do if you want to have a reasonable expectation of going to heaven. So you need to begin sharing the faith with your fellow parishioners and Catholic family members. Here's what I'm willing to do to help you get started saving the Catholic Church through catechizing your fellow Catholics. If you'll send me proof that you've enrolled in the Marian Catechist Apostolate Basic Catechism course, I'll send you a free copy of the Lay Evangelist Handbook. In the alternative, if you go to the Joe's Stuff page on cantankerouscatholic.com and buy five copies of Secrets of the Catholic Faith for your future students, I'll include the Lay Evangelist Handbook in your order. Now let's get started saving the Catholic Church here on earth. You're six-pack warriors. You can do it. There aren't any excuses. You're not too old or too young. You're not too sick or too busy. Just do it. Learn things about the Catholic
0: faith you never knew in Joe Sixpack's Secrets of the Catholic Faith. There are many essentials to our holy and ancient faith that few modern Catholics know. Those essentials have become, well, secrets. Hence the title Secrets of the Catholic Faith. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, is always exciting, never boring, and completely politically incorrect. He never shies away from the so-called untouchable moral issues. With his use of humor and directness, readers and students can never get enough of what he teaches. According to Joe, there isn't one single teaching of the Catholic Church that can't be completely demonstrated to an inquiring mind. Everything can be demonstrated. But the Catholic laity aren't being taught these things. They're being fed pablum when they need and want meat. Secrets of the Catholic Faith is actually exciting and it will make any Catholic's chest swell with pride. So get your copy of Secrets of the Catholic Faith by Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble and Kobo. It's time for the Sacred Heart Wins, with Bishop Joseph Strickland. Each week, His Excellency answers your toughest questions about the Catholic faith, the problems in the church, spiritual questions, catechetical topics, or anything else you want to know. If you have a question, just email it to joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. Now here's Bishop Strickland and Joseph Pack, the Every Catholic Guy.
1: Hello, Six-Pack Warriors. Here we are again with Bishop Joseph Strickland of the Diocese of Tyler in Texas. How are you today, Excellency?
2: Good, Joe. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm fine. Uh, And I appreciate you asking. I always like to get asked if I'm doing well. (laughs) Uh, Excellency Joan asks, does, in fact, I'm going to have some commentary myself and ask a question myself. Uh because this is a very good question. Joan asks, does or should a catechism have an imprimatur to be accepted and used by a Catholic? Thank you for considering this question. Uh so what about it? Impermater.
2: Yes, it, it should have an imprimatur is basically a, an official um statement from a bishop that this is accurate. Catholic teaching. Um, we have the the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which should be for any developed catechism in a diocese or for a certain population segment. I know there's one for teens, but the the starting point should always be the official Catechism of the Catholic Church promulgated by Rome under uh, Pope Saint John Paul II in the nineties um, and That should always be the reference point. And so an imprimatur is is fairly easy in that context. Basically, any catechism that's developed, and there are various ones, but they should always use that as the starting point. And then it makes it easy for a bishop to just make sure it corresponds with what the universal catechism says. And maybe it's just dealing with specific elements for a certain age group or a certain kind of Focus for teachers or whatever.
1: Okay that 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 is exactly the answer I expected. Canon law says that an imprimatur must either be acquired from the diocese where the writer is, or from the diocese where it is published. Correct. In my case, that is one and the same. I have a very popular catechism called Secrets of the Catholic Faith, and it does not have an imprimatur. I have been trying to get an imprimatur out of this archdiocese for years, and I can't get anything but sideways talk. So if it was to be published, I had to go ahead and do it. What advice would you give me on that?
2: Well, um, obviously, if you, as a faithful Catholic, are sure that it corresponds with the Catechism of the Catholic Church, then certainly an imprimatur gives you that extra seal of approval. But if you know that it does correspond to that, then it's not a, an absolute necessity. And obviously, you manage to get it published without the imprimatur. So certainly not everything gets an imprimatur. Sometimes a Neil Obstat is used which basically doesn't really certify the teaching, but just says there's no obstacle to this being published. Yet a lot of times they're they're added together to, to certain books. But there are many books, um, catechisms or otherwise, that don't have an imprimatur, but are still sound teaching of the Catholic faith.
1: I am a consecrated Marian catechist under the direction of Cardinal Burke. So... Uh, I've been very well trained. I think I've, I think I can put out stuff that doesn't have any, uh, heresy in it. But it has always bothered me that I cannot get an they, they don't even have anyone appointed in this archdiocese to take care of that.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, it's, it's terrible. And that's been under two different bishops. So, Okay, uh, Peter asks, oh, this is a good one, uh, goaded by the repeal of a woman's right to exterminate her own child in the womb, the rad left has been attacking Catholic churches. The ecclesial response has been to enjoin the faithful to pray and to forgive. But should we also protect the churches, maybe with an organized Catholic militia of men who are physically prepared to repel the desecrators? Of course, we did that in nineteenth and early twentieth century here in this country, particularly in Philadelphia. Uh, he asks a good question, there, Excellency.
2: Well, um, I've heard of a lot of in a, in our diocese and in other places in the the wake of the, the Roe reversal. Um, security issues have been uh, addressed uh, more significantly than before. Uh, certainly, um, the churches have a certain obligation and a right to to provide security when, when it becomes uh, obviously necessary. Thankfully, it, it hasn't really been an issue in our area, but um, certainly the church has not just the right, but I believe the obligation to see that things are, are not desecrated, that things are are kept secure. And uh, I mean, even here in the, the rather small town of Tyler, we, um, we have security at our cathedral at all the masses just for the sake of, of peace and safety. And it you know, a lot of times those act as a deterrent. If people know that there's security there, it tends to sort of tamp down any uh, wild thought of of doing something um, bad and violent to that facility or to those individuals.
1: Thank you. Chuck has an aching Catholic heart. It's obvious in this question. He asked, We had a rosary prayer service on the 25th of June, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, honoring the Sacred Heart of Jesus. At the end of the rosary, we recited the Litany of the Sacred Heart. The result was a feeling that this was an anointed moment. Uh, Where have all the good practices gone?
2: Well, um, what I would respond to that question, thankfully, there are many good practices still in place. And as we see, and just even in the Catholic world, we tend to hear the bad news. Um, and often the good news isn't as highlighted, but there are many efforts of, of rosaries, of novenas, of all kinds of, of good Catholic practices that I see, certainly here in the diocese. Many of them inspired and run by laity. I, I certainly encourage that. And uh, and I've, I've actually called for, like we're having at the beginning of October, um, from October 1 to October 7th, we're having a, a, a rosary, um, not crusade, but uh, um, congress, a rosary congress that many dioceses are doing. So the, the question raises the need for all of us to, to treasure those practices and to bring them into our own families, into our own lives, into our parishes. And thankfully, I see a lot of that happening. Um, certainly, there are, there, there's bad news out there, and we have to pay attention to that as well, and, and clearly and joyfully um, and vigorously share the truth but also we do need to, to highlight the good things that are happening.
1: Okay, thank you, Excellency. I I typically advise people like Chuck, uh, you know, if the good practices aren't there, the uh, whose fault is that? You know, go to your priest, go to your bishop, suggest these things and ask for them. Uh, my experience has been that Nearly every priest I've ever talked to is very accommodating in this regard.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Thomas asks, (laughs) you're going to love it, when should a priest deny communion to a person?
2: Well, um, I like the way they put that question, because we need to remember the teaching of the church applies to every person. It's not this group or that group or this important individual or this, in worldly terms, this not important individual. Every person, the same basic moral teachings, the sacramental teachings apply to all of us. And so a priest should deny communion to someone who clearly denies the faith um, and is not willing to repent of that denial. And uh, so, really, uh, I think that's the simply the answer. If if that person is known to deny the faith, and you know that can happen in pastoral situations, uh, I'm sure that in many cases, you know, a priest in a large parish or a bishop in a diocese, you may not know the 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 situation of that individual coming forward. But if a priest does know and is aware that this person, you know, maybe they run an abortion clinic, you know, just a very classic example. You, they're known in the town, and they just had a big fundraiser for their abortion clinic, and then they show up in the communion line. Certainly, I'm always respecting the, the, that that's a child of God even with the evil they may be doing, they're beloved of God. And so we treat them with that respect of another child of God. But the greatest respect is to tell that person, if you have the opportunity, certainly pastorally, before they get in the communion line, but it's to let that person know that they, it's not appropriate for them to receive communion. And if, you know, if they don't accept that, then the pastor or priest is, faced with with denying communion to that person uh, honestly in my 37 years as a priest I've never confronted that kind of situation I have confronted situations where people needed to be told and in my experience for the most part when people are told clearly and um, compassionately not attacking but simply saying you're not living up to communion with the church therefore it's not appropriate for you to be receiving the body of Christ. In my experience, people respond to that because um, frankly, uh, people that are most of the time, people uh, they may you know do it for political reasons or for other uh, reasons that really have nothing to do with faith. But if they're just simply people in the community, If you're coming forward to communion and the priest tells you it's not appropriate to receive, um, in my experience, the people respond to that because, you know, they're genuinely maybe ignorant of of some of the teachings of the church. Um, If they're coming to communion with some sort of a, a militant agenda, you know, that in itself makes it inappropriate until they get more right with the church. They're not really in communion spiritually, and receiving the body of Christ when they're not in communion spiritually is not appropriate. It's not it's not good for them or for the church.
1: You know, I I'm like most other uh, devout <laughs> Catholics, practicing Catholics, in that I uh, get upset that Canon nine fifteen is not invoked enough whenever the language in it is clearly mandatory it doesn't give a bishop a choice he has to do it and yet on the other hand i've tried to put myself in your shoes that would be a very difficult thing whenever you're not used to uh uh confronting people it's it would be a very difficult thing to do i have uh compassion for the bishops who uh, shy away from it, but that doesn't make them right. (laughs) Excellency, thank you very much for being here again this week. Uh, I guess we'll see you next week, okay?
2: Okay, thanks, Joe.
1: There's little doubt in anyone's mind that society in America is in a state of entropy and utter chaos. So what are you going to do about it? Wise families are preparing for that real caca hits the fan moment. Most don't know how to do it properly though. There's so much to think about when preparing to protect your family. It's overwhelming. In How Your Family Can Survive When Society Collapses, I've done all the research for you. In this comprehensive guide, I tell you everything you need to know to be able to protect your family and learn how to live off the grid. In fact, following the things I teach in this book will not only help you to survive, but your family will actually be able to prosper. Get your copy of How Your Family Can Survive When Society Collapses Now, today, while there's still time to prepare. You'll find a link in my show notes at cantankerouscatholic.com, or you can go to the book section on the Joe's Stuff page.
0: Now here's Joe Sixpack. In
1: 1852, the people of the Caucasus Mountains in the southern part of the Russian Empire were ruled over by a just sultan named Shlemil. He wanted to clean out corruption and bribery from among his people, so he made a law that anyone convicted of bribery should be punished with 50 lashes of the whip in front of all the people. To everyone's surprise, the first person to be caught in the act of bribery was Shlemil's own mother. He was grief-stricken that his mother should do this grave act against his law, and for three days he struggled with himself about what he should do. On the fourth day, he appeared before all the people had his mother brought before them and ordered two men to begin the whipping. As the first blow was about to fall, the sultan suddenly went to his mother's side and untied her. Then he gave orders to the two men to tie his hands, rip off his shirt, and whip him instead. They did so, but unwillingly. With a deathly pale face, he bore all fifty blows himself. Blood flowed from his wounds as they were made to gape open further and further from the slicing action of narrow leather against his flesh. Once the beating was finished, he turned to his shocked people and said, Now you may go to your homes the law has been satisfied. The blood of your sultan has flowed to make up for this crime. From that day, bribery was never heard of again among Shlemil's people, because they never forgot their just ruler and the sacrifice he made in love for his mother, and justice. I think it's very easy for us to take our redemption for granted. After all, we've heard how Jesus was crucified for our sins, and when we look at the crucifix, we see a very sterile version of what really took place. The corpus on the crucifix is always clean, with very little evidence of injury beyond a slit in his side and the nails protruding from his hands and feet. His face, if depicted as still living, shows an expression of great anguish, but still sterile. Yes, with a mere abbreviated version of Christ's passion and death, and sterile pictures and crucifixes, it's easy to begin to take our redemption for granted. Strictly speaking, the redemption of mankind might have been accomplished without the pains of Christ's passion. It was the will of the Father that the world should be redeemed not only by the Incarnation, but with suffering and pain. So, in obedience to his Father, Christ chose to save the human race by enduring poverty, rejection, opposition, and finally the disgrace of crucifixion. That Jesus preferred this method of saving the world shows his wisdom in proving how much he loves us and how much we mean to him. It also invites us to follow his example and prove our love for him in return, much as the example of the just sultan explaining why bribery was never again known among his people. As stated, our crucifixes are sterile and modest in depicting the suffering of our Savior. Take time to read the Gospel accounts of Christ's passion carefully and meditatively and you'll see what I mean. In the upper room, Jesus exposes his anxiety when he not only told Judas to go and do what he must, betray him to the Pharisees, but to do so quickly. Later in the garden, Jesus actually began dying there when he began bleeding through the pores of his skin, a medical condition brought on by extreme stress. So bad was his stress and anxiety, the father sent his son an angel to minister to him the final consolation he'd receive until his death was exchanged for our lives. When Jesus was arrested, he wasn't given any sort of compassion or rights by his persecutors, such as our laws guarantee for felons today. He didn't even have the benefit of counsel from a lawyer, which is what the scribes were. Indeed, the Sanhedrin convicted Jesus of blasphemy in a short kangaroo trial held in the middle of the night then they punched him with fists repeatedly. They jerked out handfuls of his beard from his face. He was horribly treated by his own people. Since the Sanhedrin lacked the power under Roman law to execute Jesus, they had to wait until morning to take their case before Pontius Pilate. So where did Jesus spend the remainder of the night? They dropped him into a hole in the ground that was too deep to climb out of and so narrow that he couldn't even sit down to rest. After meeting with Pilate the next morning, it was agreed that Jesus should stand before the governor in judgment. Pilate, coward that he was, couldn't find anything Jesus had done worthy of death, so he had Jesus scourged in the hopes that this punishment would satisfy the Jews. We hear about the scourging and meditate on it each time we pray the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, but this brutal event is also sterile in our thinking, due to the sterile and modest pictures depicting it. Following Roman law, Jesus was beaten by two soldiers with a scourge made of leather strips like a handful of smaller bullwhips. On the end of each of those leather strips were sharp rocks and hook-like pieces of metal. Each time Jesus was struck with a scourge, as it reached around his body and head, the hooks dug into his flesh and ripped out huge hunks. Jesus was beaten almost to death. Adding insult to injury, the soldiers then mocked him as king of the Jews with a crown of long thorns. It wasn't merely placed on his head. The soldiers, in their lust for savagery, thrust those long and painful thorns onto his head to make them dig into his skull. Jesus' suffering continued for hours. He was forced to listen to the crowd demand his death, the very people he loved and came to save, while finding himself taking the place of a murderer for execution. He was forced to carry his heavy cross through the streets of Jerusalem until the consequences of his scourging wouldn't allow him to carry it any further. He found himself face to face with his mother along the way, knowing how broken her heart was at seeing him in the shape he was in. The crucifixion itself was the greatest of his humiliations. Was it painful? Yes, and the pain is more than you and I can possibly understand. I could do an entire boot camp on how Jesus physically suffered from the cross, but the humiliation is just as important and can be covered here. In our crucifixes, we see Jesus hanging there with a loin cloth, but a careful reading of the Gospel accounts of the crucifixion tell us that wasn't the case at all. Jesus was hanging on the cross before a crowd of people gloating over his demise, and his mother standing in front of all of them before her son, stark naked. He had nothing on at all, not only exposed to his murders, but exposed to his loving and faithful mother as well. Jesus' final emotional agony came when he gave his mother to St. John. In a homily about the sufferings of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Bernard the Abbot explained it this way, Or were the words, Woman, behold your son, not more than a sword to you, truly piercing your heart, cutting through to the division between soul and spirit? What an exchange! John is given to you in place of Jesus, the servant in place of the Lord, the disciple in place of the master, the son of Zebedee replaces the son of God, a mere man replaces God himself. It had to be equally painful for Jesus as it was Mary. Indeed, Bernard's words show us how Mary had an active participation in our redemption. Jesus suffered for us more than we like to think. In fact, I don't believe any of us like to think about how much Jesus suffered for us. No one likes to dwell on such brutal, barbaric events. Still, dwelling on the passion of Christ is something we must do. If we fail to meditate on his passion and death, then we take him and his sacrifice for granted. If we take Jesus and his sacrifice for granted, then we become lukewarm if feeling anything at all about our redemption. Then the day will come when we will hear Jesus say to us, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. You might want to sit down for this one. I'm going to stop asking you for gifts to support this show and begin asking you to help me get more listeners to the Cantankerous Catholic. It won't cost you anything except a few minutes of your time. The more reviews the Cantankerous Catholic gets, the more often it's displayed by the podcast aggregators when people are looking for new podcasts. Occasionally, this might cause the Cantankerous Catholic to get attention from podcast magazine, the industry's trade magazine. So click on the link in my show notes that says Rank and Review the Cantankerous Catholic, so more Catholics can join us. Then write a short review. Doesn't cost you anything and it doesn't make me anything. It just gets more listeners for the Cantankerous Catholic and makes the USCCB livid. That's a good thing. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Peter Julian Imard. He said, Happy is the soul that knows how to find Jesus in the Eucharist and the Eucharist in all things. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. There was a man in New York City who made his living in the trucking business. Late on the night before the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, a feast that used to be celebrated as a holy day of obligation, a customer requested that he haul a cargo of fish it would mean working on the holy day. The Catholic businessman declined, saying that he had to attend Mass. When the fish dealer explained that his cargo would spoil if they waited until the day following the feast, the trucker consented, saying, I won't ask my men to work. My two sons and I will haul the fish. That they did, missing Mass as a result. At the end of the month, the fish dealer received his monthly invoice from the trucker for services rendered, but there was no charge for hauling that particular shipment of fish. When he called the truck owner's attention to the omission, it was explained this way, There's no charge. We never do business on Sundays or holy days. My sons and I did it for you as an act of charity in order to save the fish. This is one of the valid excuses for labor on Sundays or holy days, namely a notable loss to your neighbor. Since it was done in charity, no charge was made. The church sets Sunday and holy days apart, reminding us forcefully of our duty to worship and think about God. The prohibition of labor helps men to honor God in group worship. There's no blessing on unnecessary manual labor on the Lord's Day or on Holy Days of Obligation. This
0: has been the Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.